0: Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna.
1: And I'm Amber, and let's make this quick, Anna, because I gotta go get ready for the big game. Wait, since when are you a football fan? Um, Since never. Why would I be talking about football? Honestly. Obviously, I'm talking about the ancient Mesoamerican ball game. Step aside, superb owl. <laughs> superb owl who? See what I did there? I did. I did Thank see you. what you did there. All right. No copyright infringement for us. Wait, what? The the SB, if you say that, it's, it's really? like copyrighted speech. That's why everybody I didn't calls it that. the big game. Because SB owns it. Wow. And they'll slap you with a fine. I didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Not so super, is it?
0: What if I'm okay. talking about like a really great kitchen bowl that I like? <laughs> I what if know. I said it was... Oh,
1: what was that sound? Was it the sound of a drone delivering <laughs> your, an injunction against you? <laughs>
0: no, it's the very enthusiastic landscaping team outside my apartment who was determined to remove every leaf from the property. So enjoy that, everyone.
1: Okay, well, let's get serious. Back in our episode about the Inca, Aztec, and Maya before European contact, we promised that we'd go into aspects of each of those subjects in greater detail in the future, and now is the future. This is the first of many times that we're going to deliver on that promise we made you. We're calling this the Mesoamerican ball game because it has gone by a few different names depending on who's playing it. And when it was played, um, and it's been adopted by a few different societies, all of whom had their own rules and styles, but all of whom resided in Central America, Mesoamerica. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, there were at least five distinct games, but let's just keep it simple, shall we? I like simple. Great. Good. Me too, especially when it comes to the sports. Sports so, ball. Yes, And so for this sports ball, there are a handful of symbolic features that are common to the game throughout the three and a half millennia people have been playing it. We know what we know about the game from ethnographic data from contemporary athletes, um, who we'll talk about at the end, uh, written histories of the societies that played the game and accounts written by the first Europeans to witness the sport live, and archaeological materials like excavated ball courts, sports equipment like balls and yokes, and ball game related imagery and ritual objects
0: live from chichen yeah like that like
1: yeah. like that ritual object no when
0: you <laughs> said when you said witness the sport live i was just oh, thinking no. like what would the announcers be like well
1: the announcers were super racist
0: right because they were the first europeans
1: okay keep going <laughs> uh, so we'll talk about all the paraphernalia used and the courts on which they were played um, we'll get to it but first things first anna who did it first <laughs> Well, people have been playing since forever, but if we're talking about
0: the ball game that took Mesoamerica by storm, that would be the Olmecs. The earliest evidence for the ball game itself dates to about 1700 BCE and consists of ceramic figures that appear to be playing, and the oldest known ball court dates to 1600 BCE at Paso de la Amara in Guatemala. Researchers have discovered rubber balls at El Manatee. Is that, does that mean manatee? The manatee. Well, at, remember manatee, that's
1: one of the words that came from.
0: Oh, from Taino. Yeah. Right, right, right. Manatee. So, uh, at El Manatee, researchers discovered rubber balls, uh, and that's on the coast, the Gulf coast of Mexico. And those date to approximately 1600 BCE. 14 of these rubber balls have been found, ranging in diameter from eight to 30 centimeters, which is three inches to 12-ish inches. Boy, that's, that's a real difference. That's like yeah. tennis ball to soccer ball. Their size suggests they could have been used in the game, although they could also represent ritual deposits, especially the smaller ones. Aw, little minis. And they were deposited at a shrine over a period of a few hundred years. In what is called the Early Horizon in Mesoamerican chronology, beginning around 1400 BCE, Olmec-style symbols spread across Mesoamerica, and that includes the ball game. Early Horizon figural evidence of gameplay is found in coastal Chiapas, which is on the Pacific, and that figural evidence looks identical to Gulf Coast Olmec while somewhat different representations are found at this time in the central highlands of Mexico. So, uh, let's talk about what looks those figures were serving. The ball game players uniform became codified during this time. And so we have monumental sculptures that show us that they wore thick protective belts and loincloths with visible shorts underneath just like
1: they got like, boxers on.
0: Yeah, they got like their their under armor. And the game involves only using the hips. To keep the ball in play, not hands or feet. Another type of ball player wears the same protective belt and loincloth, but also a mask or helmet and pectorals thought to be mirrors. Does that mean that they were mirrored?
1: They were wearing like a like a like a pendant, like yeah. on their like on their chest. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. What's up with that? I don't know. know. Uh-huh.
0: Other participants in the game wear a pectoral suspended from a thick neckband or collar with detachable arms, which perhaps were arranged to show ballgame-related scores or other information.
1: That's really interesting.
0: So they just had, like, little scoreboard dudes running around, maybe.
1: Yeah, like like a sandwich board guy (laughs) just, like, flips it over.
0: I wonder if he also had hot dogs. Like, maybe Um, he was the hot dog guy, too. Probably not. Okay. Okay. It also appears that symbolic aspects of the ball game emerge in the early horizon. There are monuments interpreted as depicting an Olmec ruler in his quote role as a ball player, and another monument from um, San Lorenzo Tenochtitlan shows a ball player quote astride a prone figure with ankles bound together, a scene that has been interpreted as a ball player atop a bound captive, indicating that the connection between the ball game and captive sacrifice probably began with the early horizon Olmec. Put simply, The rules of the game state that two teams must keep the ball in the air by hitting it only with their hips or butt or elbows or knees or thighs. No touching, no holding. And the game moved fast, but it wasn't just a matter of keeping the ball in the air. Points were awarded for particularly skilled gameplay or for hitting one of six sunken markers on the court. If a player were to get the ball through one of two rings suspended at either end of the court, the game was immediately over, exactly like what happens when you catch the golden snitch in the Harry Potter universe. Considering the ring at the largest known ball court in Chichen Itza was set some 6 meters, or 20 feet, above the playing alley, it's pretty easy to understand how getting that heavy ball through the hole was a feat. All of this uh, structural stuff was to facilitate the bouncing of the ball. And the ball bounced because it was made of rubber, which blew the minds of the uh, Spanish colonialists because, you know, they didn't have rubber. And they were like, this stuff bounces?
1: What? Yeah. And um, the, so also we'll, there's a video, there's a YouTube video that we'll um, we'll share in the show notes. But like this rubber ball is kind of like a racquetball rubber ball yeah, so where it's really heavy, really. really dense. and yeah. like the the idea that you're hitting it with your body is Ouch. scary, yeah. So but is it so you're just, hitting it with your body or
0: is it hitting your body?
1: no, you landers,
0: no, I, I understand how the ball play works, but like basically, you are repeatedly putting yourself in the path of this ball.
1: I don't know. There seems to be a like more agency in it when you watch the videos of gameplay. I believe um, you. I'm just imagining if I were to play. Oh, no, I would just get hit in the face. So as the game spread through the region and evolved over time, it was taken up by the Maya. And during the classic Maya period, remember that's about 300 to 900 CE, we find some of the richest visual sources on the ball game. Um, the ball game itself was a very big deal among the Maya. And the biggest deal of all is the ball court at Chichen Itza, which was built around 800 CE and which is the largest and best preserved example of a Mesoamerican ball court found to date. The Maya added, the Maya were the ones to add that stone ring for bonus point opportunities. Um, but as we mentioned, putting the ball through that hoop was a very rare event um, in in the video, we're sharing a video of contemporary players. They show someone getting it through the hoop, which is very cool looking, but also like two feet off the ground. Um, and even that was impressive. Um, the game, the sport was fairly ubiquitous. And so Mayan ball courts can be explored at just about every archaeological site, uh, including at Palenque, Yashitlan, Tikal, Uxmal, um, Ekbalam, Kopan, and Kalakmo. Um, And I saw one at Lamanai in belize oh cool um uh, yeah uh, so in the images of the ball game and stories surrounding it the game is uh mapped onto the creation epic uh the Popol Vuh, and images invoke the ball game as a contest between mortals and sinister underworld deities dun, dun, um dun. and um the Ball court itself represented a portal to the underworld, and both the Maya maze god and royal impersonators dressed as ball players. So you have deities that are represented as ball players, and then you have ball players that are sort of seen metaphorically as um, mem- as characters within this uh, the the Quiche creation myth. Oh, interesting. And so I'm going to read. Um, a few lines of the Popo to you. Okay. Um, and so this is the section of the summons of. So, so in it, so in the story, um, you have these two guys that get summoned to the underworld, which is Shibaba, um, and they are challenged to a game of the ball game. Um, hey, um, you said this was a Kiche creation myth? Yeah.
0: To what culture does that belong? Is that...
1: The K'iche' Maya.
0: Okay. K'iche' Maya. Okay.
1: Okay. Yeah. Talking about the Maya. Um, So, <clears throat> then was the arrival of the messengers of one death and seven death. Go, you war counselors, to summon one Hunapu and seven Hunapu. These are... These are the the two human men. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell them when you arrive, thus say the lords. They must come, say the lords to you. They must come here to play ball with us that we may be invigorated by them. Truly, we are amazed greatly at them. Thus they must come, say the lords. May they bring hither their implements, their yokes, their arm protectors, and their rubber ball as well. Thus say the lords. Tell them when you arrive there. The messengers were told. So So, it's like... Spoilers for the Popova, but they die. And they're... um, son and nephew since these are two brothers um Mm -hmm. so they're so son and nephew the hero twins whose names are hunapu and Shubalanke, um they play against the gods to avenge their deaths and restore order for the mortal realm um and i'm including a translation of the popova in the show notes and i suggest you check it out because it is extremely metal but it's also
0: kind of like the gods summoned them and they just like wanted someone to play with kind of
1: um, well does it that we may be invigorated by them is it yeah, just like because they're going to sacrifice them and uh, drink okay. their blood um mm. and so Shibaba this this underworld place of shadow sounds so metal and they name a bunch of the lords that so hang like out there demons kind of yeah, kind of i guess they have names like one death and seven death Pust demon and jaundice Ooh. demon oh god bone staff and skull staff staff flying scab and gather oh, blood uh. sweepings demon and stabbings demon wing and packstrap oh, St- packstrap for these are the names of all the lords um it's super cool <laughs> sweeping um, demon I know. Ugh. Um, and then in the Popova, we can read a, ab- we can read a lot about how the game was played, um, and what was used to play it, but there are translation challenges surrounding Mayan languages and terms for gameplay, like the specific jargon. Oh. Um, so the Popova was written in Quiche at, because it's indigenous to the Quiche people of the Guatemalan highlands. Um, uh, and the technical words for the equipment fell out of use or changed over time. Right. Um and so we we lost those words because early colonial Spanish quiche dictionaries aren't helpful in this matter either, um, since because they didn't
0: bother recording the words. No,
1: no, because since the ball game stopped shortly after Spanish conquest. Oh, so. Nobody was playing it anymore. So thus, some of the meanings of the words are lost forever. Does ba'ate mean yoke? We don't know, but maybe. But what we do know is that dictionaries and written sources are always valuable for what they do include, but sometimes what they don't include is also very illuminating into the archaeological record. Um, and then I'm going to include another article in the show notes that looks at a few different glyphs. So mm-hmm. Mayan glyphs uh, that are that refer to technical language around the sport, which is which is pretty cool because cool. I I love looking at Mayan language because just like with hieroglyphics, it's just it's sort of there's a degree of absurdity of looking at it and being like ah yes this word hand holding ball and it's just like <laughs> oh god glyphs but yeah so such that is. That is the Maya. So, Anna, let's talk Aztecs.
0: Let's, and apologies in advance to any Aztecs listening, because there are many words in Nahuatl in this paragraph, and I will do my best. So the Aztecs also loved the ball game, and they called it Ulamalistli in Nahuatl and played it on an Ulamatlachli, which is a ball court. It was played ceremonially as well as casually, and was seen as fun to play as well as fun to gamble on, less fun to lose bets on. In order to feed that need, the Aztecs needed a lot of rubber for ball making. The rubber tree is not endemic to Aztec territory, so they imported rubber balls as tribute from outlying subjects. The Codex Mendoza, which is a Spanish account created between 1529 and 1553 um, that contains a history of the Aztec rulers and their conquests, lists a figure of 16,000 lumps of raw rubber being imported to Tenochtitlan from the southern provinces every six months, although not all of it was used for making balls. But still, that's a lot. A lot of rubber. Yeah. Just like the Quiche Maya saw the game as a proxy for the underworld and their creation story, the Aztecs also ascribed a religious value to the game. Researchers believe that the Aztec people may have viewed it as a battle of the sun personified by Huitzilopochtli against the forces of night led by the moon and stars and represented by the goddess Shaki and Coatlicue's sons, the 400 Huitznahua. Are there 400 of them? Yeah, probably. This seems like a lot against a little. I mean, I know the, the main one is the sun god, but yeah. it's like 400 against one. Anyway, they also upheld the other and probably the most famous aspect of the Mesoamerican ballgame, human sacrifice. Or did they? So this is from National Geographic, quote, horror stories prevail about the ballgame and the ancient Maya because horror sells, whereas the nuanced reality of the ballgame and its relation to human sacrifice would probably not fare so well on late night television. The best archaeological evidence we have linking sacrifice to the ball games are murals found at the ball courts, like the one from Chichen Itza, which shows the decapitation of one of the players, and the round object in the middle with the skull like head may represent the ball. So, in some ways, a decapitated head was said to represent the head of a sacrificial victim. Interpreting this picture further seems to be debatable among archaeologists, the reason being, We don't know if the sacrificial victim is the loser or the winner of the ballgame. So from this same National Geographic article, quote, The losers were not sacrificed, at least not all the time. If that were the case, the Maya civilization would have decimated itself fairly quickly. The more likely scenario is that ritual sacrifice was only performed after certain games specified for that rite. The most common scenario was the final play in the war ceremony, that after a city won a battle, rather than simply killing the vanquished leaders— they equipped them with sports gear and played the ball game against the conquered soldiers. The winners of the war also won the ball game, after which the losers were then sacrificed, either by decapitation or removal of the heart. How frequently this happened is unknown, although historians have shown that the practice increased later on in Maya civilization and may have been a symptom of society's decline. In any case, this method of sacrifice was tied entirely to warfare.
1: Yeah, and I know that we um kind of pulled more Maya stuff in there with the Aztecs but this idea that like the Aztecs were crazy about human sacrifice um is really pervasive and maybe um, not so accurate. Yeah, yeah, and so it's it's very and so this is something that we talked about when we discussed the Temple of the Flayed Lord um and the idea that one of the researchers put forward that like, maybe what you're, maybe you're looking at iconography. Maybe you're not looking at some kind of one to one representation of reality. Because if you go into a Catholic church, or, you know, if you, go, uh, if you go into, um, like an Eastern Orthodox church that has much more iconography, like, do you think that, that someone, that there will always be someone crucified, like in, like in worship? right or you know if you have Im- you have images of saints and martyrs who um many of whom met very graphic gruesome. graphic ends yeah gruesome ends and uh do we think that you know if if one pr- prays for intercession by one of these saints are they supposed to in some way uh, to like sacrifice someone for that so it's it's something that um is much more nuanced than yeah. a lot of people are willing to discuss. So, now, that that maybe. said, <laughs> I, maybe the players weren't sacrificed, but they probably did get
0: pretty roughed up. So the Spanish who observed the game, and, you know, we don't have any idea whether this was exaggerated or not because they thought this game was barbaric anyway, but the, the Spanish who observed the game reported horrendous injuries to those who played it, so deep bruising requiring lancing, which, like, if your bruise is that deep that you need to drain it, Ugh broken bones, and and even death when a player was hit in the head or in an unprotected soft bit by the heavy ball.
1: Yep. Ouch. Yeah, because remember, this is a, like, five-pound chunk of rubber going, like, staying in constant motion, and you're only able to hit it with, like, not your hands. With your butt or your hips. And so you're hitting it, and so that's why they wore the protective belt. That's why they wear the protective belt, and so that, you're not hitting it with your kidney. You're hitting it with the like leather belt that you've got around your waist. Right. Um, and so I, I mentioned earlier that the old quiche words for elements of the ball game uh, were lost shortly after the arrival of the Spanish colonizers. Um, so I did mention that. And so there are a lot of reasons why people might stop playing the game. Um, but the Spanish did outlaw such activities at other points in other parts of their empire. But, Don't worry. The game survives today. Yay. Uh, Yeah. And we can assume we, because it's, since it's three and a half thousand years old, we can assume that it has changed in some ways, some (laughs) small ways and some large ways, no human sacrifice, Uh, but it's court and accoutrement strongly resemble the ancient version of the game. So in the state of Sinaloa in Mexico, there are two versions played today. Um, One played with the hips and one played with the arms. So you can, You can like bop it with your elbow. um, But not your hands. Or just, or your like downstairs parts. Yep. No hands. No hands. And so there have been two large-scale tournaments held in Mexico, one in 2006 and one in 2017, with upwards of 10 teams competing for a a title, like a championship title. Very, very cool. And there are efforts from international and domestic cultural heritage organizations to support the game and teach children to play. Um, And so so these are upheld by UNESCO and um, various, like, organizations dedicated to patrimony and mm-hmm. especially among indigenous patrimony mm-hmm. uh, in Mexico. But I will hazard a guess that such efforts have been dampened uh, to a degree by the presence and activity of the Sinaloa cartel, oh. uh, which you, most people have heard of whether yep. they know they've heard of it or not, because it is, a, it it is, uh, was formerly headed by the man known commonly as El Chapo. So, since there is a lot more to Sinaloa than just the cartel, I've included an essay on the history of indigenous Sinaloa on on the in the show notes for listeners that may only know it as a source of a cartel or the truly excellent taqueria in Oakland. There also is a very very cool short but very cool video of. Uh, a game of people playing a game, not the whole game because it takes a while. And they interview players, um, one from a men's league and one from a women's league uh, to get their perspective on what the game means to them and sort of the more heritage aspects and kind of spiritual elements to being a part of something that is so old and so important to your community. Yeah, Yeah, it's really awesome. Um, And like all of this is way better than watching football to me i agree uh maybe we have (laughs) listeners that like football too no and that's totally fine we also probably have listeners who like the puppy bowl and that's totally fine oh
0: my goodness oh love those puppies
1: oh thanks for listening
0: everybody we will be back in your ears soon and you can put us there as usual via soundcloud apple podcasts or the platform of your choosing and while you're there please go ahead and leave us a little like or a review or a five-star rating. It really, really helps us out.
1: Also, we have shouts out. Oh, that's right. We have shouts out.
0: We have shouts out. Thank you so much to our new Patreon supporter, uh, Paul. King Paul. King Paul.
1: King Paul has an email domain. That is a Sumerian word. And so I assume that he is just emailing us from his work account of being a king of a third millennium B.C. city-state. Yes, of course. Um, And also, thank you very much to Claire, who has upped
0: her subscription level to the top tier of Absolute Dirtbag. Getting that Dirt After Dark content. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Follow us on Facebook, everyone. Uh, We are The Dirt Podcast. Welcome. Um, On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at the Dirt Pod. Yeah, and we are doing an event with
0: the AAA, the American Anthropological Association, where in celebration of World Anthropology Day, you can ask us anything. And we've posted on social media um, a form, a Google form, where you can ask us any question related to archaeology or anthropology, things you want to know about discoveries or anything, what it's like to do archaeology. Um We'd love your questions. So or us, you, I guess. I mean you can't Yeah. It is anything. Yeah, well, we're not that interesting. Well, I'm not. You're great. Oh. Send us those responses by yes. Oh, send us those responses, please, by February fifteenth at eleven fifty nine PM Eastern Standard Time.
1: Yeah. And then on February twenty first, which is Anthro Day, uh, we will be releasing an audio version. Uh, And also a video version of us answering all y'all's questions. That's right. We're going to answer them with our faces
0: on video. Mm -hmm. How about that? Mm -hmm. You can support us also on Patreon. If you you want to be like
1: King Paul. King Paul. Or
0: Claire. Queen Claire. You can do that. You can. You can become a monthly subscriber or a single time donor either way. It helps us out so much and we'd be extremely grateful. You can do that at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Thanks everybody.
1: Bye. Bye.